Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, February 20th. Happy President's Day. We acknowledge first that our oldest living president, Jimmy Carter, much beloved by many, especially for his post-presidential work on peace and human rights and with Habitat for Humanity, Jimmy Carter's family announced over the weekend that he has entered hospice care at home at age 98. Now, I've had the privilege of having President Carter on this show three times. On one of those occasions, excuse me, on one of those occasions in 2012, he was on to talk about how his Christian faith informs his politics, and I asked him this question. How about the persistent outcast status of gays and lesbians among some of the most observant Christians. Why do you think people are so dug in on that in the name of Jesus, who is supposed to be tolerant? Well, uh, Jesus wrote and spoke about a lot of different sins that we have, like selfishness and pride and so forth. He never mentioned homosexuality. And, of course, we know that even in days before Christ, in Roman history and so forth, there was a lot of, uh, of gay practices. So I think Jesus didn't condemn gay people, and our church accepts gay members. We don't question people when they come to our church, but uh, I think there's a natural inclination on the part of human beings to put ourselves in a position superior to some kind of other people. I grew up in the Deep South when white people considered themselves to be superior to African Americans, and it was condoned and approved by the Supreme Court and by the Congress and other people. Now, of course, that's over, at least legally, and uh, and we see Americans now turning to despise what they call illegal aliens or people who come here from Mexico or other southern countries. So, so I think in almost any society there's a tendency to exalt ourselves and our particular character of life above and beyond some other people. But that's what uh, some people, even if they're Christians, are concerning those who happen to be gay. Jimmy Carter here in 2012. We'll talk now about Jimmy Carter and other presidents on this President's Day with political historian Julian Zelizer, who wrote a biography of Carter simply called Jimmy Carter, among other books he has written or edited, including Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, The Fierce Urgency of Now, You thought that was an Obama line? It's Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society, and Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. Julian Zelizer is also a CNN political analyst and professor of history and public affairs at Princeton. And Professor Zelizer, it's always great to have you on. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you. It's great to be back with you. Well, Jimmy Carter... One of the scenes in your biography of him is on his inauguration day, January 20th, 1977, when he orders his Secret Service detail to stop the limo he's in for the inaugural procession, and he and his wife Rosalind and their daughter Amy get out of the car and walk 
the 16-block route to the White House. How is that emblematic of Jimmy Carter, the man, and 1977 as a moment in U.S. history? Well, we're at a moment when many Americans are still reeling from the aftermath of the Vietnam War, of Watergate. Many have lost their confidence in political institutions, including the presidency. And uh, one of Carter's central themes in the 76 campaign was that voters would be able to trust him, that he understood that there needed to be limits to presidential power, which had been so abused over the years. And by stepping out and walking with the people and kind of getting out of the automobile, which symbolizes uh, the, the presidency, uh, he wanted to show that he understood. He heard what Americans were feeling. And it was a very exciting moment for many who were watching, including those uh, along the you know parade uh, sidelines. And he famously wore a sweater, a cardigan, less formal than presidents usually were to address the nation on television on at least one occasion. But would it be accurate to say Reagan, who succeeded him, reacted against that and returned to presidential formality as kind of a this is how the leader of the free world or maybe how a person in power should dress to project power? No, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those moments where something a president does that's initially greeted with a lot of excitement, whether it's wearing the sweater, getting out of the car or kind of um, ignoring or eliminating some of the trappings of, of what happens when a president enters a room. Then there's a reaction. And part of what Reagan set himself up to do is restore uh, what he said was the dignity of the presidency to look like what a president should look like. Uh, and he went back to tradition and reversed himself. And part of that was an attack on Carter's legacy. Part of that was an attack in, in Reagan's mind on what Democrats had done to political institutions. Emily Inayak, however, is going to remember another part of his Christian politics that doesn't get talked about very much. Emily, you're on WNYC. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for taking the call. Um, yeah, so in 1976, my father was an early Carter supporter. He helped coordinate his campaign here in New York. He got the law changed for how we put uh, candidates on presidential ballots and in primaries because the candidate's name was up front and then the delegates. But as a young woman at that time, I was 16, I was furious my father was supporting a man who did not support a woman's right to choose. And... Uh, you know, as as we try to reconcile human beings who do good things and also who do bad things and decide how we feel about them, for me, Carter really represents that struggle because he was a wonderful ex-president. He did some great things in the White House. He also did things that, that disturbed me greatly. You want to mention one? Um, his stance on Afghanistan. When he left the White House, his uh, Habitat for Humanity, you could not be on the board if you were not a Christian. Um, and on the other hand, as a Jew, I was pleased that Carter spoke up about um, Israeli policy towards the Palestinians. I thought it was brave, and I respected him for that. Emily, so. thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your call. Uh, well, Professor Zell, is there a number of things there that we could chew over? Oh. First of all, uh, Carter was anti-choice, wasn't he? But I think he didn't make a big thing of it. 
Yeah, I mean, in the 76 campaign, it, it's discussed. He discusses it, and uh, he does believe in uh, in choice uh, in limited circumstances. But compared to where the Democratic Party generally has moved today, he's pretty conservative. And um, I think that will always remain a, a controversial part of, of how people remember him. And for some Democrats, uh, Carter on this issue and some other issues like public spending, even how he ultimately conceived of civil rights was part of a new, more moderate Democratic Party that was aiming to move away from some of the 1960s ideals on uh, issues related to gender and other social issues that was frustrating. And there's many Democrats uh, who remember that. Look, when Kennedy, Ted Kennedy challenges him in the 1980 Democratic primaries and does pretty well, and Kennedy makes this historic speech at the Democratic convention where he's kind of railing against Carter for abandoning uh, key Democratic principles and moving too far to the center. So those comments, I think, reflect uh, yet another part of his legacy that um, we will be discussing for years to come. And it was in your book as well, your biography of Carter, that as an outsider to Washington, he had no obligations to interest groups of either party. So he rubbed Democratic constituencies the wrong way in some cases, such as those that Emily from Nyack and you just highlighted. Um, and remind everybody, why, why did he get primary? That's certainly one of the reasons that he lost to Reagan in 1980, even though Reagan, of course, ran to his right. Ted Kennedy primaried him from his left, right? Yeah, I mean, some of it was just the sense he was a vulnerable uh, incumbent by 1980. He was wrestling with the Iran hostage crisis, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, a bad economy. Uh, that was certainly not getting better. So I think part of it was just pure political calculation that here was a leader who looked weak and there was room for a different kind of Democrat. And part of it, though, was a bigger ideological battle taking place within the Democratic Party, where you had someone like uh, Jimmy Carter, who was very much arguing that the party had to move away from some of its traditional positions. It had to be less uh, adherent to certain party orthodoxies if the party was going to thrive in, in the modern age. And some of this, I think, was genuinely felt. Uh, it wasn't simply political calculation. For Ted Kennedy, this was a big mistake. Uh, he was prouder in many ways of that New Deal, Great Society legacy, and he was fearful uh, that Carter was going to jeopardize those. And so part of his primary run was an appeal to stick to democratic principles and to respect what they added. And uh, you know, that too, it's a debate Democrats are having right through this day. And on the Iran hostage crisis, which a lot of people will say was the central reason for his downfall after Carter allowed the Shah of Iran following the Islamic Revolution there in 1979 to come to the United States to kind of get out of Dodge in Iran and come here for medical treatment, um, a group of they say students, but maybe it was just various radicals of various ages, took over the U.S. embassy in Tehran and held uh, dozens of Americans hostage for the rest of Carter's presidency. And perceiving him as weak on Iran was one of the reasons that he lost to Reagan in the 1980 presidential election. Uh, but he came on the show and talked about that 
in 2014. And I'm going to play a clip in, in which Carter emphasizes that the way he ran diplomacy with Iran at that time um, helped preserve the lives of the hostages, none of whom were killed or harmed by the Iranians. And he puts this in the context of two things that might have saved the hostages' lives. When the Ayatollah Khomeini approved the action of the militants, I've never thought that he knew ahead of time that they, that they were going to invade our embassy and take our hostages as they did. I think he was caught by surprise, but then later he found it politically expedient to go along with what they were doing. But there's no doubt in my mind that their religion and also their fear of American retribution prevented their actually hurting a hostage. Later, one of the hostages developed a, a numb right arm, a young man from Maine, and immediately they released him uh, to freedom, and he came by, and I met with him. So they were very careful not to hurt an, a hostage, and they never put one on trial. So Jimmy Carter on the show in 2014 talking about how fear of U.S. retribution and also Islam as a moderating influence um, helped preserve the safety of the hostages, even in captivity. Really interesting. And I think Matthew in Great Neck wants to follow up on that. Matthew, you're on WNYC. Hello. Yes, hi. Good morning. Um, I wanted to just say that as someone who grew up in the 70s and 80s, you know, I kind of grew up with, with this mythos of the of, uh, you know, the Reagan coming in and saving the day and, and Carter was such a failure. And it was and it, it's really, you know, proven over time so untrue. And more importantly, I, there was a recent PBS documentary uh, about the hostage crisis. And it's something I'd never known before, how much time Carter spent with the hostage, the former hostages, not just, you know, uh, on the phone and making sure that, but actually flew to Germany and, you know, spent time with them, even despite, you know, their obvious anger at him for allowing it to happen or whatever. I imagine there's quite a bit of bitterness. But it, it again, it just shows a, an, an incredible. And this was after he was he had already lost uh, to, to Reagan. So mm -hmm. it really was just it's it just so incredible to show his empathy and, and sympathy to the to these fellow Americans and, and showing that and the and also the humility in showing that, you know, he, he had tried and perhaps he felt he had failed. And uh, it just shines an even greater light on, uh, on President Carter. Thank and you very much, Matthew. Professor Zelizer, anything on that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots to it. I think uh, one of the more controversial elements of everything we just discussed is allowing the Shah into the United States, which really precipitates the crisis and uh, also remains a very controversial moment. Uh, but another part of it is how did he handle it? And for many generations, the assumption was he handled it poorly. He didn't get the hostages out and the hostages would ultimately believe, uh, be released when Ronald Reagan was elected president, literally around the inauguration. But can I linger on that for just a second? Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of the early maybe if we can say cable TV moments or just um, dramatic what might be seen as a modern media moment where the Iranians had held the hostages until Reagan's inauguration day. And there were literally split screens on that January 20th, 1980, uh, 1981, of Reagan being inaugurated and Iran releasing the hostages as if to rub it in Jimmy Carter's nose, right? 
it, it was to rub it in Jimmy Carter's nose. But what we've learned since is Carter had really orchestrated the release. I mean, through a number of things, including threats and pressure, including sanctions, including ongoing negotiations that the country didn't know about that had been taking place, the deal was reached. And so Reagan got the credit, but only because Iran didn't want to release the hostages and let Carter get the credit for what he had done. And I think in his post-presidency, Carter was bitter about that. And he understood very well, and he talked about it, uh, that had this all not unfolded this way, Uh, He could very well have been a president for a second term, that this really damaged him. The other media story, in addition to the split screen, is this is when uh, you have kind of nightly coverage of of the uh, event with the show that uh, becomes Nightline doing this every day and kind of hammering away at Carter's inability to secure the release, even though he actually does secure the release and he does it um, without military action except for one failed moment uh, when there's an attempted rescue that goes poorly. A few more minutes left with Julian Zelizer, Princeton historian, biographer of Jimmy Carter, among other books that, that he's written on this President's Day and with the news that Jimmy Carter at age 98 has entered hospice care. Let me pull out the lens a little bit to an even longer view Because your book about Lyndon Johnson and the battle for the Great Society social programs, one thing about the arc from LBJ to Carter, four presidents in a row, and really going back to Kennedy, um, presidents in a row did not compete, did not complete two terms in office. Kennedy was assassinated. LBJ was too unpopular to run for reelection. Nixon had to resign. And Carter lost his bid for a second term. Does anything tie all that together, or is it a series of coincidences? Well, I mean, obviously, some of it is is coincidence. Obviously, uh, President Kennedy was was assassinated, but it is an era, I think, where we talk about growing distrust in government, some of the instability and questions that arose uh, about the nature and future of American democracy and what it was about. And here you have this period where you don't have this uh, long-term, two-term uh, presidential stability. You could throw in Gerald Ford, uh, who also is kind of a, a Band-Aid president in some ways, uh, replacing uh, Nixon, but then losing to Carter in 1976. Oh, I forgot and, and, about Ford. I didn't even yeah. include Ford on that list, and he yeah. never got so elected. No, no, right. So uh, I don't know. You know, It's not all planned out, but I do think it is very much part of this era in the 1970s, um, where we started to look again and uh, to question uh, how we relate to power and how we relate to those who had power. And nothing is more important uh, to that than where the presidency stands. And and Carter tried to offer a new model. In the end, um, there'll be debates uh, for a long time of how much he succeeded and how much he failed. LBJ won almost every state in 64, a major landslide, and Nixon won almost every state in 72. That's the era just before your book on our growing tribalism called Fault Lines. How is it even possible for the electorate to swing so heavily so fast? I don't know that that could happen today. It can't. I, I don't Well, I don't want to say it can't happen, but it's very unlikely it will happen. Really, since 1984, we haven't had elections like that. And 
Uh, it was a much more dynamic electorate. Both political parties were deeply split in the time that Carter and LBJ were in the White House. And it was still possible to move people using our current color code from red to blue and vice versa. You don't see that. And it's changed the nature of elections. Presidents uh, and can and opponents don't go for landslides anymore. They're really focused on narrow slivers of the electorate and can you move them over and add them to the parts of the country you already have almost regardless of what you do so it's changed the dynamics of politics it's also made it harder for presidents to get uh, to be loved uh, by a large part of the populace i think they're settling in to just having some part of the population uh, enjoy what they're doing in the oval office political historian julian zelizer who wrote a biography of carter simply called jimmy carter among other books he has written or edited, including Myth America, Historians Take on the Biggest Legends and Lies About Our Past, The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society, and Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974. He's a CNN political analyst and a Princeton professor. We always appreciate when you come on, and we always learn so much when you come on, Professor Zelizer. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.